Again, another answered prayer. Oh, there I am. I would like for you to turn with me, if you will, this morning to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, as we continue to look at light in the midst of darkness. Isaiah 59 is a section of scripture that I've referred to numerous times, and it's one that I will continue to refer to numerous times, as it is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's great love for us and how much uh, he was willing to give up so that we might be forgiven. And so Isaiah 59 is a beautiful picture that while the problem doesn't lie with God, the only remedy to our sin and our brokenness is God himself. Isaiah 59, and I'm going to be reading this morning up to verse 16. That's as far as we're going to go this morning. And so I, I hope that you've come ready to hear quickly, as long as my voice will last, about the goodness of God in bringing rescue in our darkness. So would you, if you are physically able, would you stand with me as we read uh, Isaiah 59 and as we prepare to study it for just a few brief moments. Here's what Isaiah writes in verse 1, behold... The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover, um, will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. This is what I want you to focus in on. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. 
And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that in these verses we will see our desperate need. And God, I pray that we'll see your awesome, powerful arm at work in saving us. So God, we give you praise this morning for allowing us to gather together and to study this. I pray, Lord, that you will help me to be able to preach this morning. Help me to do so under your power. Uh, God, I pray that your people will be encouraged by your word this morning. I ask you to receive glory as we learn from your word. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, so I need you to listen quick because in about 20 minutes, I'm going to fall over. And at that point, uh, just be dismissed if that happens. Um, I'm going to grab my water real quick while I'm thinking about it. But what I want you to notice as we open up in these verses, I want you to notice that the Lord is present. And sometimes in the midst of our darkness, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that the Lord is not present or that something lies problematic with him, that something is wrong in the way that the Lord deals with people. What I want to point out to you this morning as we start off is that the problem doesn't lie with God. The problem we see here in these verses do not originate with him. This is a result of our brokenness. This is a result of our failures. This is a result of our sin. And yet the Lord is good in the midst of it. Now, in Isaiah 58, we get a picture of the people of God trying to force God's hand of deliverance. Basically, they, they are living this life that if we do the right things, if we outwardly are obedient, then God must act in our favor. Just so you know, we can never make God's hand do anything. We can never put God in our debt in any way whatsoever, and yet we find the people of God are guilty of that very thing. They're holding feasts, they're, they're fasting, they're doing these rituals, but in the end they're doing them so that they could force God's hand into doing something for them. And what we see listed out in Isaiah 59 is that we have no right to presume that God would ever have to owe us a single thing, that we would never have the right to presume that God would be in our debt in any way whatsoever. But yet God acts graciously towards his people. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the fact that God doesn't save me because I'm worth it, but saves me because I'm not worth it. Saves me not because I've earned his grace, but because he has given it freely. That gives me hope. It gives me comfort. Because just so you know, as I read these verses, don't just think, man, this sounds like my neighbor. Because in the end, this is a picture of you and I apart from God. Isaiah 59, Isaiah starts by telling us, he says, behold. Now, anytime you see the word behold, that means pay attention, listen up. If you're about to doze off, I need you to go splash some water on your face right now before and then come back in. I don't want you conking out with what is about to be said because God, God just said right here, behold, which means that we are to put our attention toward what's about to be uttered. He said, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Let us start out by noticing that it is not God's issue that's at hand, it's ours. He says, because the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. The people of God are wondering, God, where is your deliverance that you promised? The context of this is, is God is giving them a picture of the fact that he's going to take them off into exile, into Babylon, and he is promising he's going to deliver them back out. But yet in the midst of exile, they're going to be screaming out, God, where is your deliverance that you promised? It's been a long time, God, where are you? What Isaiah is proclaiming is the fact that God's hand is not short. 
T-Rex arms, right? God's, God's hand is not so short that he can't reach out and rescue. Some are looking at God saying, are you able to do this? Is the problem you can't deliver us out? Is that the issue? Are you, do you lack the power to be able to rescue people and deliver them? Isaiah says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. It's not weak that it cannot save. It's not to the point where God is unable to rescue or deliver his people. He says, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. This is not due to some kind of lack of a hearing on God's part or his ability to know what's happening in the lives of his people. They wonder why hasn't deliverance come yet? And they're starting to think, well, maybe God can't deliver us. Isaiah would be quick to say, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save. I don't know about you, but I'm glad for that. I know my arms are too short to reach to him. I know I'm limited. And I know my sin casts a separation between me and God. I'm really glad that the Lord's hands aren't too short to reach across that chasm. I'm really glad that the the disobedience in my life that causes separation between me and God is not so great that God can't reach back across it. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But here's the problem. The problem doesn't lie with God's ability to do anything. God is able to do whatever he desires. And just so you know, God is also justified in all of his actions even when he doesn't respond to us. But, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, here's the scary part. It's not that God is unable to save. It's not that God's unable to deliver. It's not that God's uncaring in what goes on in our lives. It's not as if he is aloof to what's happening in our lives. But it's our iniquities that have separated us from God. We're to blame. We have created the barrier, the divide between us and a holy God who can't be in the presence of sin. And this iniquity have separated us from our God, and our sins have hidden his face from him so that he does not hear. That's the result of our sin. The result of our sin is the chasm that exists between us and God and the despair that we find in that end is so great that God doesn't even hear. It's not that he can't hear, but that he won't. And this is the frightful position we find ourselves in. This is the darkness that I'm talking about. This is the darkness that we cannot pretend does not exist. That's the result of our sin. That's our doing. And he goes on in verse 3 to give the guilt of all humanity and start to lay that out in detail. He says, for your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. What a, that's a general look at human beings in particular. And, and all we see is that their hands, their fingers, their lips, their tongue, both what they do and what they say are all impacted by sin. Just so you know, I can't even think my way to God because my thoughts are affected by sin. That's a total picture of brokenness. He says in verse 4, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief, give birth to iniquity. Here's the picture that we're going to see over and over again, that there is no justice, that there's no justice in God's creation because of the sin of our lives, because of our brokenness. Justice goes lacking 
And the guilt of all humanity is seen in not only what they say, but what they do. And sin gives birth to sin. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies from one that is crushed. A viper is hatched. This is... The hands of humanity are soaked with danger to all of those around us. We impact not only ourselves but others. Sin gives birth to sin. We see that that brokenness continues. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. You see the picture of despair. You see the general look at where God's people find themselves. These are God's people. They've been carried off, they're going to be carried off into exile, and that picture is that they've been left alone. And they wonder if God's able to deliver, and God wants to make sure that they understand that the reason they're going into exile is not because he is just a mean God, it's because they have rebelled against him. And God's purpose is to bring them back to himself. But in order to bring them back to himself, he must show them their brokenness. And just so you know, we will never trust in Christ as long as we think that we don't need to be saved from anything. What God had to do for me at the age of 17 and 18 was he had to show me that I was not as good as I thought I was. And just so you know, that's a very good thing for me. And here we see that their feet, and go go on even to verse 7, their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. So notice he says that they have deeds of violence are in their hands, their feet run to evil, they're swift to shed blood, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. So he says whatever they do with their hands, whatever they do, their feet run, so he says wherever they go, and their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, whatever they think. So you have whatever they do, wherever they go, whatever they think, all marked by sin. And everywhere they go, they bring desolation and destruction. And then he says in verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. In their brokenness, in our brokenness, we do not know peace apart from God. We have no peace with him because we have been separated from him. And there is no justice in our paths. While we may fill our lives up with things that we think are vitally important, we find no peace with God and no peace with each other. He goes on to say they have made their roads crooked. They've chosen this path. They've chosen crooked paths. Just so you know, all of us, none of us in here are innocent None of us are victims of our circumstances. We're all willing participants. We run after sin. We run after it. We pursue it. We go after crooked roads. We love to make them crooked. In the end, we see that we have chosen this path. And does anybody look at these verses and go, you know what? I think God kind of owes me a little bit. Maybe the problem's with him. Maybe his arms are too short to save or... Maybe he doesn't hear us or is unable. Listen, the picture here has nothing to do with whether God's able to do anything. It has everything to do with our rebellion against him is so complete. Then he says that acknowledging our darkness and our wickedness is vital. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us, right? Notice that he goes from speaking about them to us. It becomes personal. Personal pronouns are used. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, and we walk in gloom. I don't know about you, but that's a great picture of where we are as people, apart from God, is we hope for light, but we find nothing but darkness. 
We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. And I'll be honest with you, I did not realize that before I was a Christian. I didn't realize I was in darkness. Everything looked pretty good to me. Everything looked pretty set, straightforward. Thought I was a good guy. Thought I was going to do great things. But what God had to show me was I was in darkness. That all my good deeds were still wickedness because I was doing them for my glory, for my credit. And just so you know, this verse 9 tells us and points out something very important to us. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. In the end, we like to blame everyone else but ourselves for our, our problems. It's always someone else's fault, but Isaiah leads us particularly away from that by showing that it is our sin, it's our brokenness. And then verse 10, not only do we have darkness all around us in the world, but this is a personal darkness. He said, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. All right, do I need to, do I need to explain this in great depths? Or is it clear to you from the metaphor that apart from God, we are like blind people groping in the dark? That's a great picture. Because I don't know. Okay. I, I went to one haunted house one time. And it scared me to death. I went to, it was in uh, Yankee Town, Indiana. And and it, it was outside, and it was called the Trail of Terror. The name should have told me, don't pay money for this, right? The fact that they charged me money to do this is ridiculous. But they take us out in the dark, in the middle of the woods, and there were certain parts of that where you're in the middle of the woods, there's no lights anywhere, and in order to find your way to the next part of it, you literally had to feel the walls next to you. Just so you know, there is nothing as helpless feeling as that. Then when you got to grab a wall to find out where it goes. This also happened to me when I was working second shift at a bank in Indiana. I worked with a bunch of college guys who thought it would be funny that when I went into the bathroom... They would walk in and turn the lights out. You don't feel more hopeless and helpless than when someone turns the lights out on you. And the only way you can find your way back is to feel along the walls. That picture of helplessness, that picture of, of not being able to find our own way out, that's a very appropriate picture for the fact that it says that we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. So we are blind. We are in darkness because of our sin. We cannot find God. We don't even look for him. We don't even know what we're looking after. We don't know what we're going for. We can't find our own way out. In the end, we are Helpless. We are like dead men. There's nothing we can do to find salvation on our own. 
And all we can do is long for deliverance. Look at verse 11. talks about longing for deliverance. He says, we growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none for salvation, but is far from us. This is how they feel in exile. They feel like salvation is so far away from them. They feel like all they can do is groan and growl and, and ask God to do something great, deliver them. But in the end, they can't do anything for themselves, but they're longing for deliverance. Oh, apart from God... We should long for his deliverance from darkness. He says in verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, and our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Does anybody walk away from this feeling like God owes us something? That we're not guilty? That we're not in sin? Verse 13, he gives the details of that, transgressing and denying the Lord, turning our back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. That's us. That's, that's us. In the midst of that, verse 14 tells us that there is justice lacking. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. That's very similar to verse 9 when he talked about the fact that justice is far away. The people of God are going to be asking in the midst of exile, where is justice? Where is God? Where is his deliverance? Where is his rescue? And Isaiah is pointing us to the fact that it is our sin that has caused this exile. And it's not because God's unable to do anything. And it's not because he doesn't see what we find ourselves in. He's not aloof to our brokenness and the darkness that we're in. God's passionate about justice. He's passionate about his justice and his righteousness. He says in verse 14, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That is Isaiah laying out for us the basics of who we are as human beings, not deserving anything, stuck in sin, lost in darkness, blind to our need, blind to any way to save ourselves. And in the end, that's the helpless estate that God's people find themselves in. And it sounds an awful lot like Genesis 6, where God also looked upon the earth and couldn't find anyone. He was, he was, he was sorry that he had created humanity. The depths of darkness and brokenness was there. But then this. Then this. Here's Christmas. You ready? Just so you know. I, I know I've read this the whole time, and you're like, this has nothing at all to do with Christmas. And you want me just to tell you cute little stories and build you some gingerbread houses. You know, that's what you want me to do. You want me to you want me just talk about the good, good stuff and holiday hams. You probably have never studied Isaiah 42 and connected it to Christmas. Because that doesn't sound like a Christmas card you send out to anybody. Oh, by the way, I just want to let you know you are full of transgressing. Denying the Lord and turning back from following him. But here's Christmas. Second half of verse 15. You ready for this? Here comes Christmas. You ready? Here comes Christmas. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him. Ah. <sighs> And it all changes. <laughs> it all changes. Oh, that list of tragedy in all of those verses, our ugliness, our brokenness, and we were stuck in it with no hope of deliverance. But it all changed the minute we're told that the Lord saw it and it displeased him. 
<clears throat> I got my voice back right now. I don't know if you're excited by that or not. <laughs> Hold on. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Charge up for the last run. Here we go. Ready? Final lap. The Lord saw it. That means that God wasn't just a distant God who didn't care about his people. He saw their brokenness. He takes notice of brokenness. God's not unaware of the struggles and sin in our own lives. He takes notice of it, and he knows that you and I can't rescue ourselves from it. I don't know about you, but I'm glad God does take notice of my brokenness. I need him to. If God doesn't take notice of my brokenness, I am without hope. And not only that he saw it, not only did God see our brokenness, not only did he see our sin, but it displeased him. He was not pleased. And something must be done. It starts with God seen and the fact that it displeased him to action. It displeased him so much that he must act. He looks down and sees darkness and brokenness, and it displeased him so much that he must act for the sake of his name because he is righteous and he is holy and he created all of us, every single person. He has created in his image, and it displeased him that his image would be marred by sin. And so he looks on me, and in the midst of my helpless estate, he looks upon me, and he sees my sin, and he's displeased with it. But he doesn't say, Jason, clean your life up. Get right, boy. He doesn't say, Jason, stop doing this or that. In the end, when God looks upon my helplessness, he looks upon my darkness, he looks upon my inability to do anything, I am helpless. He sees that there is no justice. In verse 16, he says, he saw that there was no man, wondered that, uh, that there was no one to intercede. There was no one who could intercede on behalf of God's people. Even if you look at the good people that God provides, like Moses and David, even they fail and blow it because of sin. Even they are stuck in darkness. But God then said, his own arm would bring salvation. Amen. He looks upon us and he sees our sin, he sees our darkness, he sees our brokenness, and rather than calling us to do something about it, he knows we can't, so he does something about it. And every person in this room who is a Christian is saved because God looked and saw your brokenness and he was displeased, so he sent his own arm to rescue you. That's Christmas, because you want to know what the arm of God is? It's Christ reaching down. It's God himself coming. And I'm telling you, I don't understand this. I don't get it. Don't ask me to rationally describe this to you. I cannot rationally describe the fact that God would write himself into his own creation. Like Shakespeare writing himself into Hamlet. God has written himself in because he shows his arm that he sends Christ. That baby lying in a trough, that baby lying in a trough is God's arm coming to intercede because God could find no one else. So his, 
So he looks on my sin and he looks on your sin and he takes note of it. He says they're broken. They cannot be redeemed on their own. They, have, they cannot find salvation. They cannot earn it. God says there's no one who can intercede for them. There's no one righteous. So my arm will rescue. And Jesus is that arm of salvation. It's God himself reaching down into earth and scooping up his people. And Isaiah says his righteousness upheld him. Did you notice that the words brought and upheld, those verbs are in past tense, but at the writing of Isaiah, Jesus was 750 years from stepping foot on the earth. What does that tell us when God uses past tense about something that hasn't happened yet? It means it's so certain it's as if it already has. He doesn't say his own arm will bring him salvation or his righteousness will uphold him. He says these things are set. His own arm brought him salvation. And this, is, <laughs> this has got to be good news to people who are wondering, is God's arm too short? They ask the question, is God's arm too short? What does God say? God says he looks down upon creation. He looks down upon humanity, sees that there's no one who can intercede, so his arm extends down. Is God's arm too short? Nope. You want to know how I know? Christ, who would leave the glory of heaven to come. That's Christmas. That's, that's good news. That in the midst of our sin, that's what God gives. So God is able to save those who are stuck in spiritual darkness and sin. And he's able to save those stuck in sin regardless of the depths of it. And like I've mentioned on numerous occasions, there ain't no one in this room who if we pulled back the layers of your life, we wouldn't find some stuff in there that you would rather not be found. Right? Even all you sweet little old ladies, right? And sweet men, right? If we were to look back in your life, some of y'all done some, y'all done some wicked stuff. Because every person in this room is guilty of it. Not a single one of us says we're innocent. But God sees, and his arm is able to save even to the depths of our brokenness. There's no one who's too far gone. There's no one whose sin is so great that God's arm is too short to rescue. So God is able to save. And notice that there's nothing in these verses that appeals to something good in us that caused God to have to do it. Just simply his love and mercy. And because of his own righteousness. It's by his own arm, which shows us his power, and his righteousness, which is who he is. The fact that God is faithful to his covenant promises to his people. That when he said he's going to make a people for himself, he's going to do that. When he said he's going to bless his people, he's going to do that. And that is the basis for our salvation. Nothing good in us but the power of God and his righteousness. That's the basis for why we are able to be saved. And I don't know about you, but I'm happy this time of year that God saw my brokenness. And he didn't just stand by and watch me walk down crooked paths. And he didn't call me to save myself because he knew I couldn't. But he saw it and it displeased him. So he sent his son. That's Christmas. That's light in the midst of darkness. And if you're here this morning, if you are trying to earn God's favor or acceptance, can I encourage you? Stop.
You can never earn it. But God freely gives it by his own arm, his son whom he sent. And as Christians, <coughs> okay, the voice is going now, so I know it's time to stop. As Christians, let's remember that this season is about the fact that God saw our helpless estate, and he reached out. And that's what our neighbors need to hear, our families need to hear, our coworkers need to hear. Christ is enough. Would you pray with me?